Hey everyone, my name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another special episode of Make Ours Marvel we call Marvel Mailbag. This is our 13th Marvel Mailbag, which is great because it's October and Halloween is around the corner. It's almost like we did that on purpose. Almost. We totally didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Not that Halloween means a whole lot this year because people aren't really doing a whole lot for Halloween this year. Nope. Well, I guess some people are, but we're not. Buying candy and eating it. That's what we're doing for Halloween this year. Oh, you know what we are doing, though? If you missed it over on the other movie special, we're doing Ghost Rider discussion on oh. Halloween. Yes, 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 we are. Yeah, so that's, um, we're Double recording feature. this on the 16th, which means it's coming out on the 23rd, which means it's next week. Next yeah. week is uh, is Ghost Rider Halloween. Yay. So um, we are going to take this time to look at your emails and your iTunes reviews and your Facebook messages, not your tweets, because there's a lot of conversation that goes on there. And it'd just be really, really hard to keep track of it all. So, um, but yeah, so if you ever had anything to say to us, send us an email. We'll read it on the show. Like, I guess I'll just start here with John Morrissey. John Morrissey. So where did we leave off? We left off in... uh Beginning of oh, May. May 1st. May 1st. May 1st. Okay. Is Dormammu a good guy? No. Next. <laughs> is that question like, a, is he a good guy or is he a good guy? Because like Captain Hammer is definitely a good guy, but he's not a good guy. Right. I think neither. Um, felicitations, fabulous fellows. Felicitations, John Morrissey. I'm enjoying episode 107 at the moment, and an event in Strange Tales 140 has me wondering if Dormammu is a good guy. To refresh your memory of the issue, Mordo, the Ancient One, and Doctor Strange have been trapped in a neutral dimension by Dormammu, who thought that Mordo could defeat Strange in mystic battle if Dormammu used some of his power to augment that of Mordo, but no dice. So then Dormammu decided to head over to take care of Doctor Strange personally, once and for all, using Judo and energy pincers that he wore on his wrists. Oh yeah, that one. And they did like two issues in a row, though, right? I don't remember. When they had, yeah, they had like the the energy pincers oh, yeah, on their yeah, wrists yeah. and they like grappled with them. Yeah, because right. he anticipated a great win, Dormammu summoned overlords of neighboring dimensions to assemble as his personal cheering section. Okay, so you're all caught up. What about this scene makes me think that Dormammu is a good guy because before leaving for battle, he uses a potion to put the mindless ones to sleep. The mindless ones are described by Mordo, by Dormammu as being brutal, savage beings who live for the moment when they will crash through my protective barrier. Dormammu needed to do this so that he could dissolve the protective barrier in order to use the associated mystic energy in his upcoming battle with Doctor Strange. Finally, my question to you about Dormammu being a good guy. Although this may be viewed as a bit of self-serving for him, Dormammu is protecting many dimensions from invasion by this horde of brutal, savage, mindless ones, isn't he? Only the maintenance of his protective barrier prevents them from storming into his dimension and lots of surrounding dimensions, right? Does this make Dormammu a good guy on some level? What do you guys think? Until Spider-Man battles a living wall, make mine, make ours marvel. You know what this reminds me of? What? Uh, you ever seen The Life of Brian? Once a long time ago. There's this bit where like all these conspirators get together to try and overthrow Rome, and they're like, what has Rome ever done for us? And someone's like, well, the aqueduct. What? Yeah, you know, they gave us the Octoduct. That was pretty cool. Uh, okay, so they did one good thing. But what else have they ever done? Eh, they lowered crime. Okay, that's true. Yeah, okay, they lowered <laughs> crime, fine. Cleaned up the streets a little bit, you know. We got, we got like, sewers and stuff. Okay, okay, fine. But outside of that, 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 what has the Romans ever done for us? So I kind of feel like 
maybe as a side effect of his own selfishness, Dormammu is protecting us from things. But he doesn't seem like a good guy to me because he, all he ever wants is revenge on Strange for pulling one over on him. And he wants to invade our world and take it over. Um, yeah. No, he's not a good guy. I think choosing to do something that is of benefit to us is not the reason why he's choosing to do it. Right. He's doing something that's benefit to him. So, mm-hmm. well, then it becomes like the whole definition of what is good, right? Good is, if you if you get philosophical about it, good is a really self-serving definition. Mm-hmm. I mean, good means of benefit. Good means helpful to, to usually to yourself. So he does. Um, so he is benefiting. His existence is benefiting Earth six one six, I guess, in that mm-hmm. sense. But it also isn't because he's constantly trying to take it over and right. ruin and mess with our Sorcerer Supreme. So that's not great. And just this very description of him, like bringing in a bunch of people to watch as he destroys Doctor Strange, suggests to me that he's got some uh, bad qualities. Despotic, even. Mm-hmm. So, uh, long and short, John, uh, we're going to have to say no on that. No. But he does have another question. Not a question, but an answer. He's not Galactus where, like, kind of good and evil don't really apply because he's just a force of nature sort of thing. Right. Because he has too many um, selfish behaviors, I think. Although, really, in, like, the same sense, I would say Galactus is evil. Not that he's malicious, but he is destructive. Mm. I mean, he is evil to us. He is destructive, but if he isn't destructive, then the celestial seeds, a.k.a. planets, get out of control. Somebody needs to be a natural celestial seed predator. Agreed. You know? It's just that's not like very saying, That's like every time we watch a Disney movie and the lion or the meat eaters are always bad. Well, they're not really bad. That's just what they have to eat. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is, people. Sorry. But they are. They're always bad, the lions. Unless it's the Lion King. Then they're all cute and cuddly. Yeah, then they're cute and cuddly and they they live in harmony with the deer. Or the antelope, they said, or something. Right. So you got the next one from him? All right. John Morrissey, May 1st again, the mystery of the Avengers recreator solved. Ooh. Howdy, hallowed heroes. I hope he under- he reminds us what that means. I'm writing to answer a lingering question from your discussion on Avengers 23 in episode 107. To refresh your memories, yay. In this issue, Cap has temporarily walked away from the kooky quartet, and King uses this opportunity to transport Wanda, Pietro, and Hawkeye to his own century. When Cap hears that the Avengers have disappeared, he returns to Avengers Mansion and uses the Avengers Recreator, the accursed instrument which Iron Man once used to probe recent past, to probe the mansion and determine that it was Kang who abducted his fellow Avengers. I remember those oddly drawn pages. Okay. The footnote associated with the creator states that we used this gadget issues ago, but if you can remember when, you're better than we are. At the time of this recording, neither of you could remember when Iron Man used the creator, recreator, and neither could I, so I did some research to determine when it happened. And the answer is, it didn't. No wonder you couldn't remember Iron Man using it, because he never did. The first and only other appearance of this gizmo was in Journey to Mysteries 105, and it wasn't called the Recreator. It was called the Time Reversal Ray, and it didn't belong to the Avengers. It was created by Calvin Zabo and used by the Cobra and Mr. Hyde to view Thor in a movie running backwards so that they could determine where he comes from. And it I remember that. They watched him fly backwards into the office window of Dr. Donald Blake, which led them to attack Jane Foster and Blake in his office. Do I get a no prize? So until Thor works as a pen paramedic named Jake Olson, make mine, make ours Marvel. Is that really true? I don't know. I feel like maybe they just psyched us out, but I feel like Iron Man used that stupid thing before. 
but I really have no memory of where. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he just never used it before. Yeah, I'm thinking that I, I definitely remember the Calvin Zabo time reversal, Ray. Oh, yeah, me too. And whenever he uh, used it to probe the recent past, I thought about how Superman sometimes will like use people's heat trail to figure out where they've gone. Mm, yeah. Um, but I couldn't remember that ever happening before with the Avengers. And mm-hmm. I will totally buy that it didn't and they got confused. You know what's cool is the first Guardians of the Galaxy, that's the opening scene with Star-Lord, is he has some gizmo that lets him see like the past based on energy signatures or something. Yeah, yeah, so he does. that could that's be a- called a recreator. Ooh. You know, the MCU's version of a recreator. Uh, yeah, that's weird. I do remember Iron Man had like that weird communication thing where he could beam himself around or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember a recreator. Anyway... All right. Uh, the next one is short, so I'll do the next couple. Okay. Um, the next one is a comment on the website from Tim Price mm-hmm. on Make Ours Marvel Mailbag 8. That was five whole mailbags ago. Whoa. So we've done five mailbags since May. That's not bad, actually, because this is five months <laughs> later. We should probably not read mail about mail, because where does that end? <laughs> I don't know. Mail about the mail about the mail about the mail we read. Time for some marvelous meta mailbag mail. Jeez, August, September feedback. Has it really been so long since the last feedback episode? Whatever. I'm tempted to answer some of the questions you have, but the questions are based on feedback from nine months ago. And it might be nine months before you read these answers. Ha, it's been five. And I can already hear you reading this message and saying, oh, God, Tim, please stop. (laughs) He called it. Stay marvelous, guys. Thanks, Tim. Uh, he also commented on 107, similarly okay. to John. It's uh, Kang and Ravana sitting in a tree was the name of that episode. The end of Hydra, Strange Tales 140, and the story continues into the next issue. I should be annoyed, but these early Marvel comics have actually pulled this bit a few times already, so I'm more resigned to it. <sighs> uh, I guess because it's the about- end, but it's also continued. Oh, and it's not really the end anyway. We all know that. Yeah, they came back. Like you guys, I'm so surprised at Stark's recurring role here. It makes Tony's post-Civil War role running S.H.I.E.L.D. much more natural than I ever suspected. Hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah, I never thought about that. But also, how good are the spies at S.H.I.E.L.D. if they can't tell Tony is wearing a huge <laughs> chest plate under his suit? He wears the same kind of metal that Cap S.H.I.E.L.D. is made of when he Cap wears it on his back and goes to the bank and nobody blinks an eye. Well, everybody just, goes through the metal detectors when they come into S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, remember when we found out that Dugan's oh. wearing a skull piece? Yeah, but his is like plastic cloth metal or something. It's not really metal. Hmm. He's not really made of iron. I think I his guess. chest plate's pretty pretty rigid metal, but maybe not. Yeah, not. well, now it's not even the same chest plate, so who right. knows? Who knows? Maybe they just ignore him when he's around. Oh, great, Mr. Moneybags is here again wanting to play spy. Just humor him. Maybe he'll leave soon. Which does lead me to being totally gobsmacked for Tony to go into action in space, flying his brainosaur and not an Iron Man to be seen. One, that's awesome. Two, maybe this is how Tony maintains his Iron Man cover. If Stark were Iron Man, he would have worn the armor to fly that dangerous mission. This changes everything. There you go. Hydra skateboards. Hydra skateboards. (sighs) Hydra skateboards. I just can't. And he changes the acronym. He uses the acronym for Hydra, and he uses the acronym for skateboards. <laughs> Doctor yes, Strange. Yes, but now Dor- he has to write in and tell us what the acronym is because I'm putting him on the spot. What Skate- does skateboards stand for? 
Mr. Tim yeah, Price. What does Hydra stand for, for that matter? Well, we could look that up. You go ahead, keep reading. I'll look it up. But okay, Doctor Strange and Dormammu fighting in friendship bracelets. Yeah, so that happened. I did enjoy myself, but nothing particularly stands out. So it was fine. Point five. My take on the Eternity Saga. Still loving the artwork. The visuals are so psychedelic and creative. And in terms of a story, maybe it's groundbreaking in truly being a single arc that's gone this long. And that alone makes it stand out in a medium that's still primarily one and dones. So I can see it being noteworthy for being first for trying something different. Not that I've done any research or anything. I'm just a yo-yo with a keyboard. Is that the acronym keyboard, Tim? What does keyboard stand for? Tales of Suspense 73. Oh, this is a crazy cool story. Iron Man totally caused Black Knight's death. But considering the shape he's in at the end, it's almost a Pyrrhic victory. Look up how many R's in Pyrrhic. Yes, nailed it. There are in fact two R's in Pyrrhic. And it's related to the word pyre as in funeral pyre, P-Y-R-E, which means like a fire. In fact, the words fire and pyre probably have the same Greek root now that I think about it. Anyways... And dang, what an ending. Looking forward to the next part. Did you find the um, Hydra acronym? Well, people, don't spell Hydra with periods in between each letter because that's not accurate. It is not an acronym. It is a reference to the Hydra that you can cut the heads off of and it keeps coming back. Okay. That's, that's what I was it. thinking. The idea that it was also an acronym on top of that was, no. was going to be crazy. There's little notes here that says sometimes the comics like capitalize all the letters, which makes it seem like it should be an acronym, but it's not. But it's not. So really, you should just spell it Hydra, like a Hydra. Like a Hydra. And I recognize that trick of tilting Iron Man's head to give his face some expression. I remember mm-hmm. later artists using that as well. It can be overdone at times, but when used appropriately, it's darn effective. Love, love, love. Cap and the Second Sleeper. I never considered a Gojira angle in the, on the story. I love it. Well spotted, guys. And yes, all those people died. <laughs> Stan must be scared of the CCA. That's the captions. But pictures don't lie in the 60s. Yep. Or I guess pictures don't lie, period, in the 60s, because now they can be edited. Because <laughs> now they are liars, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I totally remembered that the third sleeper is a flying red skull head, but I still don't recall how Cap beats it. Maybe it dies of embarrassment being a turducken monster. <laughs> Look at me, I'm a giant head on a flying manta holding sci-fi robot. Kill me now. Well, that was a very lackluster, uh, dramatic... Uh, beating, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, here's a grenade. Bye. Okay, that was easy. Sidebar, I read JLA Power Rangers recently, which what? contains JLA slash Power Rangers. That's a thing. Okay. That was a thing. All right. Flash says, Batman has been kidnapped by a pink flying robot dinosaur. Hey, you guys hey. brought up the Rangers, not me. That's awesome. I want Batman to be kidnapped by a pink flying robot dinosaur. That's fantastic. Well, just read some 50s Batman. That probably happened. <laughs> you're wrong, wrong you're not wrong <laughs> um the avengers 23 another kang in the can yes indeed this is a hella confusing story and you guys called out all of the things i would especially calling wanda the weakest avenger are you freaking kidding me not these days All right, I'll say it. According to the comics of the time, weakest Avenger, Scarlet Witch. The reality manipulator equals weaker than an archer. Weakest FF, invisible girl with nigh impenetrable force fields equals weaker than stretchy Armstrong guy. Weakest X-Man, Marvel girl, moves things with her mind equals a weaker, equals weaker than a guy with wings. A guy with wings. It's okay. 
I'm fine. Really, it's fine. Breathe. You know, it's true, though. It's totally true. Like it's a, it's actually weird that like they're so I don't want to say they're anti women or women haters or whatever, but they certainly don't write women with a lot of respect. But at the same time, they keep giving them these amazing powores. Mm-hmm. So it's like none of them like Invisible Girl doesn't have the ability to make toaster ovens invisible or something like that. Like she's actually formidable if they want to write it that way. Right. So on the one hand, on the one hand, it's like sucks the way they write these women, but on the other hand, it's like yay, thank you for giving them awesome powers that we now take advantage of in today's. Uh, modern writing sensibilities. And some of it is occasionally there are definite, you know, choices made in the stories that are rooted in misogyny, you know, mm-hmm. things that the guy characters do that put down the women or whatever, or making storytelling choices for the women that are really mm-hmm. not great. But probably mm-hmm. a lot of it is like subconscious and like mm-hmm. systemic and not even realizing they're doing yeah. it. Like the fact that they yeah, called think- all the women and all their teams the weakest, uh-huh. that probably wasn't intentional, but it's a problem. It is still a problem. Yeah. It's just a sign of the times, and they were probably thinking more like, you know, they can't bench as much as a as a man or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they're not really thinking in terms of superpowers. Yeah, like that's craziness. But it's it's just important to like not only say women are equal to men, but to like actively take efforts to make that a part of life, and not mm-hmm. just say I treat everybody the same. No, 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 don't treat everybody the same. Actively treat other people. You know, anyways. Mm-hmm. <sighs> we sort of I got teach, there, or we're getting there. I teach middle school, so things come up. Yeah. Until next time, or until Hawkeye foils the plans of the Red Skull. No, not that Red Skull. Make mine, make ours marvel. What other Red Skull is there? Wait, until next time, holds the plans of Red Skull? Well, there's multiple Red Skulls, but I don't know what he's talking about in pertain- particular to Hawkeye. Hmm. Okay, I don't know. There's the, you know, the original fake one, and then there's the 50s one. I don't know. Maybe none of those. Maybe an actual physical Red Skull. Maybe. Maybe Red Skull's daughter. He wrote, wrote, uh, oh, there is a Red Skull daughter, isn't there? Yeah, she calls herself the Red Skull. Mm -hmm. Because she has a Red Skull. She does. Apparently had a follow-up idea on episode 107. Do you want to take it or should I? All right. Go ahead. Might as well just finish it off. With all of those comments, I can't possibly have forgotten something, can I? Oh, but I can. And I did. Seriously, you only have to read experts on my feedback on the show, not everything I write. Seriously. <laughs> Too bad, Tim. <laughs> the uh, the Black Knight's castle brought stone by stone to outside New York. John speculated it's the same castle used by Count Nefaria. I say, nuh-uh. In Marvel's New York, there's an entire industry around reconstructing castles. <laughs> The entire city is probably ringed with castles. I thought it was ringed with New Jersey. Um, mm. I can hear the contractor already. Sure, we can build you a castle when you needs it. Thursday? Look, pal, I already got two jobs this week for a Victor Van Dum and some guy malaria. Well, we could do you next week. Hey, don't forget. Don't get fresh with me. I know people. I'm so glad you had to read that. <laughs> with all of the secret headquarters and lairs and castles, building contractors are the real power brokers in Marvel's New York. That's why they got a whole uh, series, Damage Control. That's right. Um, just imagine how many warehouses they build just so they could be abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> That's DC. <laughs> okay, I'm really fish now. Maybe. Let's see. Looks like we've moved on to 108. Yeah, that's dated May 9th, and our email is dated May 13th, so go for it. All right. The Fantastic Four, number 46. You know how thieves break into your house and say their own names while being recorded? Because that's a smart thing to do. Looking at you, Seeker. 
Mm-hmm. But talking in third person seems like something successful people do in the comics, so I should start doing that. Tim Price will fix that bug like none has been fixed before. Can no one join Tim Price for an early lunch at Wendy's? I will join Tim. I've heard that talking to yourself means you're intelligent, but I don't know about the third person part. But anyway, Seeker, you'll never see the Great Refuge. Next issue box, the Great Refuge. Seeker, well, this is awkward. (laughs) Couldn't someone have told me? (laughs) Amazing Spider-Man number 32. Okay, I thought Aunt May getting sick from Peter's blood transfusion was a brilliant twist. What a way to play the long game with the story. Of course, if this was the 70s, Peter's blood would have given her powers to become Spider-May. Oh, hello, She-Hulk. I have read the next issue story before, but this one was new to me and pretty sweet. Spidey being trapped under the rubble was reprised so well in Spider-Man Homecoming. I'm looking forward to revisiting this version. And yes, the reveal of Doc Ock from Into the Spider-Verse was, oh my god, that's perfect. I love this and want to marry it now. I have to rewatch it again. I mean, it was okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was like the best thing in the world, wasn't it? I really uh, did like the whole Aunt May getting sick from Peter's blood transfusion. That was always like a really cool element to me. Mm-hmm. The X-Men number 16. I had so many of the same thoughts you guys did. A crystal kills sentinels? Really? The X-Men managed to escape and that's it? Great way to carry your friend, Beast. Give him a <laughs> give him a close of your backside? Gene uh, is doing great stuff with the powers. Either those things are so obvious even I could pick them up or I've learned what you look for. When listening to 108, after listening to 108 episodes. Wait, wait, oh. wait. Has he what? actually listened to 108 episodes? Because I I heard that he didn't start at the beginning. And you know, sometimes on Twitter, he posts like, now reading and it's some old comic we've already read. Right, from like 1961 so, or something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's doubled down on the episodes he has listened to. Um, I just thought of a terrible joke. You ready? What do you call robots that smell really bad? I don't know, Tim, what? Sentinels. I don't get it. It's not a verbal joke. You have to read it. Great feedback for an audio medium, Tim. He spelled sentinels, sent, in all. Like, 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 a scent. Yeah. yeah. Daredevil number 12. All right, all right. I'll start reading DD with John Romita doing the artwork. You sold me. Hold on. I'll be right back. Jeopardy music playing. Do, yep. Do, do, do. The art is really great. Loved it. Looking forward to seeing if this crazy kid Romita can make it or not in the comics biz. I really liked Romita. Daredevil 2, though we are currently getting an awesome Gene Gene Colin Daredevil, so that's not so bad, I guess. I've got the geography worked out. The Savage Land has a savage peninsula leading to the savage... What? Archipelago. Archipelago, of which Skull Island is part, and perhaps Monster Island, because it'd be pretty savage. I'm sure there's part of the peninsula with the savage beach, but most tourists hang out at the savage boardwalk on the savage amusement park water slides. Those slides about, are pretty savage. About the plunderer, I can totally see him being laughed at for his boat designs because he dressed and talked like a pirate when presenting them. We don't get a flashback, so there's no evidence he didn't act like a pirate at that time. So I must conclude he always has, and the boat scientists thought he was some sort of actor hired as a gag. That chap was hilarious. Chauncey, well done. But Winston, I don't know him. I thought you hired him, but I thought you did. Oh, brother. I don't really want to keep reading Tim's emails if he's going to make us do impressions all the time (laughs) but uh until next time or until kazar starts dating a real she-devil make mine make ours marvel well that one i got shauna the she-devil or is there another she-devil yeah i think so all right uh more tim oh wait no lies i don't have that yeah we have john yes welcome to john ramita from john morrissey maybe there's also an email 
Welcome to John Morrissey, written by John Romita. Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. Probably not, but maybe. (laughs) Dear purveyors of paper perfection. Hey, we don't purvey no paper around here. This is an audio medium. Yeah. Your coverage of Daredevil 12 in episode 108 was music to my ears. Why? Because it featured the matchless artistic wizardry of the inimitable John Romita. In this case, Stan's characteristic hyperbole falls short. John Romita the Elder is more than matchless, more than inimitable. John Romita the Elder is my favorite artist of all time. I say the Elder because he is not John Victor Romita Sr. His middle name is not the same as that of his son, John Salvatore Romita who is therefore not a junior. Mm. (laughs) You know what? Okay. Okay, John, it is that kind of... Okay. I know this word sounds rude, but I'm going to use it in the nicest, most approving way. That kind of pedantic pickiness Mm -hmm. is the stuff that I love. Because, yeah, if their middle names are different, he's not a junior. So why is he called JRJR all the time, then? Because they called him junior. I guess his name is junior now, but technically not a junior. Yeah. Anyway, Michael could not have said it better to quote the inimitable Michael Kaiser. Daredevil 12 opens with a big giant splash page of not Daredevil because John Romita is so awesome that it still looks cool. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) Bravo, I agree, Mr. Kaiser. John Romita is awesome. And so until Gwen Stacy has sex with Norman Osborn, too soon, make mine make ours Marvel. Oh, not soon at all. We're only in the 60s, so it's going to take us forever to get to that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. I got episode 109. Um, Yeah. Okay. Thor number 124. You asked if it was weird how Thor interacted with the little girl. In my humble opinion, is that what that was? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I-M-H-O. Thor is great with kids in Walt Simonson's run specifically. There's several stories with him and Volstagg's kids, and it's wonderful. While most of the Asgardians are trapped on Earth, Thor and the kids trek through snowbanks to return to the Golden City, and to pass the time. The kids pull surprise snowball attacks on Thor, repeatedly, and he lets them. Plus, he only playfully retaliates without dis- discouraging them from trying again, which they do, and it's awesome. So he doesn't, like, strike them with lightning or anything? That's good, probably. Probably. Thor's Asgargonauts. Please don't call Fandral Falstaff. It drives my nerd brain insane. And yes, the Volstag being on point already, he's hilarious. The line of Asgard in the house, ooh, I almost wrote Lion of Olympus, my mistake, but that's Hercules. Wait, have Herc and V-Stag ever met? Now I want this. I don't like the nickname V-Stag. V-Stag. <laughs> it just sounds, nope. <laughs> I don't even know what he's talking about. He's just babbling at this point. Okay. Tales to Astonish number 76. Neighbor has a wrap-up of the long story and the start of a new one, but put a pin in that. I think you guys nailed it. If Namor didn't keep leaving Atlantis to fight surface dwellers, those very fine people wouldn't keep trying to steal his throne. Don't continue the cycle of neglect, Namor. Yes, but at the same time, then we'd be stuck with stories of him in, uh, in Atlantis, and they're boring. We like him better on the surface, I think. So what are you going to do? Still shaking my head at people walking in a parade on the ocean floor, and not a one bothering to swim, even the kids. Sigh. Yes. That's why we don't want to have tails in Atlantis. Hulk in the future! I'm not loving it. It's okay, but that's it. And the Executioner? I wouldn't have guessed that in a hundred years. And it is in the future, so that's about right. But in light of what eventually happens to the X-Man, 
It must be an alternate reality future. So I'm interested to see if they def- definitely establish that during this story or not. Not is the um, answer to that. X-Man is in the Executioner, man. That's a, that, I like that. Yeah. They do nothing with that story, remember? No. Like, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I, I wonder if Executioner ever, if any, uh, I don't know if they ever reference that story ever again with any future storyline. But anyway. So the president knows that the Hulk is Banner. An FBI agent knows about Xavier and the X-Men. There's a lot of superhero secrets in Washington. If this continues, I'm going to need a board, thumbtacks, and string to keep it straight. And probably call it Scully and Mulder. The truth is in here. That's because it's Marvel. Nobody cares about secret identities in Marvel. Uh, not anymore. Not anymore, especially. But even back in these early ones, it's like only a little bit do we care. And I love how they, they trust the president to keep a secret. Sure. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Strange Tales 141. Fury wraps up the Hydra story and starts a new one. Remember that pin about Namor's story? Here it is. I'm feeling like this is repeating in a lot of the issues now. It's like front half to finish one story, then back half to start the next. Pretty blatantly to keep readers buying the next issue. I understand it, but it's more heavy-handed than I like. Yeah, that was happening to Hulk, too. Uh, Supreme Hydra being killed by his own guards. Oh, the irony. Strange finishes his fight with Dormammu and then starts a new mission to save white-haired women. Wait a minute. They did it again. And twice in the same comic. Are you vishanting me? John, (laughs) please keep the Transformers impressions coming for Dormammu. Cracks me up. Until next time, or until the Hulk travels to the future to fight himself. Make my make ours marvel. Wait, did I use that one already? God, too tired to think of another. I knew that one too. I don't think he has used that one already. Maybe he has. I don't know. These are getting too easy, Tim. Too easy. Not tripping us up anymore. Okay, um, the next couple are short. I can take them both if you like, unless you want to do them. Nope. Um, Never has the not... This is from Tim Price about the Flash Gordon special. Oh. Never has the not comic... Hold on, then. We're not in sync. Is that before or after May 18th? This is May 17th. Okay, go for it. Never has the not comic special been so not. Not talking about Marvel or comics or Flash Gordon or the movie. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) It was ridiculous fun listening to you three going on tangents and basically staying there. (laughs) I actually have never watched this movie, and yeah, 20 bucks, no thanks. But I do have a memory of it. Some TV movie critic pointed out that mats which the stuntmen landed on were visible in the movie and showed the oh. clip where it happened, so that's hilarious. Yeah. Not 20 bucks worth of hilarious, but there you no. go. No, 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 I wouldn't do that either. Yeah. How did I watch it? I didn't watch it for 20 bucks. I didn't either. Was it just a streaming thing on Prime or something? I don't remember. Maybe. I, I don't remember. I can't believe I might have paid 20 bucks. No, I wouldn't have done that. No, no, no. And if I'm going to spend that kind of money just to watch along with your podcast, I'd rather send you guys the money. Not that I'd actually send the money, just that I'd rather, because I'm sure you're free. You're fine with the idea of Tim sends us money so he doesn't have to watch things? Cool. What should we review next? Uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. See, even I found ways more... I found way more to write to you, but it has nothing to do with the movie. What is happening? You can rent it for three ninety nine. I probably did that. I think I did that, too. Okay, so another short one. Um, this is from Masood Shadravan about episode 107. Okay. Kang and Ravana sit in a tree, unless you have this one. I don't have this one. The next one I have okay. is, is Gunnar. Yeah, that's what I thought. So I was gonna, that's what I was going to take both. Regarding the Hydra Cobra connection, Larry Hama had originally pitched a new S.H.I.E.L.D. series that got retooled into G.I. Joe. What became Cobra was based on Hydra. I've seen several articles about this, including, and he includes one that's short enough that I just thought I'd read it here. Um, 
This is from a website called Under Scoop Fire. It's basically a reaction piece to a Chris Sims article. Chris Sims is pretty cool. He um, he does comics. He does podcasts. He does a Sailor Moon podcast and a, a, a podcast about the Bible from the perspective of non-believers. Mm. So that's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, some knockoffs ultimately some knockoffs ultimately become better than the original thing they were knocked off of. I think a lot of it depends on how obvious of a knockoff it is. It seems the more successful ones end up being referred to as tributes. While some knockoffs are more obvious than others, I came across an article recently that claims G.I. Joe was nothing but a knockoff of Marvel's Shield, which as a lifelong G.I. Joe and comic book fan, I had never put together. Now, the article calls G.I. Joe one of the five greatest knockoffs in comics, so there's no intended slight to G.I. Joe's popularity and longevity, but it still struck me as an odd classification. Here's author Chris Sims's basis for the comparison. Soldiers with super technological weapons waging a kind of secret battle against an organization that, for some reason, is always capitalized and is involved in increasingly ridiculous plots of world domination. Now, before you get your snow job undies in a bunch, because you guys wear those too, right? Apparently, there's a historical basis for labeling G.I. Joe as a knockoff. When Larry Hama created Hawk, Scarlet, and Snake Eyes, his original intent was to provide Marvel with the next generation of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. called the Fury Force. Mm. Instead of Hawk the team would have been led by Nick Fury's kid. And rather than Cobra's attempts to steal Alaska, employ mind control perfume, or take over the fast food industry with nuclear missiles, their opponents were slated to be the slightly scarier neo-Nazis of a resurrected Hydra. Mm. I guess this all makes sense, but wasn't the fast food scheme exclusive to the Red Rockets Glare episode of the Sunboat G.I. Joe cartoon series? Anyways, it goes on with a little bit of rumbling. But yeah, um, so yeah, that's the kind of the idea behind the link between G.I. Joe and shield which huh. i find fascinating yeah that's interesting didn't know I that was, i was not at all a gi joe fan as a kid but i've come to rather love it as an adult oh i liked it i that was like the last vestige of toy collecting for me probably after transformers with some gi joe and watching the movie and the tv show i was telling keenan this morning how awesome toy collecting was in the 80s yeah it was really fun action figures from star wars and uh, gi joe you had huge awesome play sets uh, He-Man figures were cool. Turtles oh, yeah. figures were cool. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the Transformers. Of course. That was the big one. But, yeah, He-Man was pretty big, too, for me. All and right. And Star Wars. You know, back in the day, kids, they used to give us, like, Star Wars action figures as, like, birthday, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, boy, I've just completely lost the word. You know when you birthday hand out. gifts? No, but when you hand out things for the people who show up at the party, favors. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Like birthday fa- favors. Party favor bags. Yeah, party favors used to have like Star Wars action figures in there because they were so cheap and affordable and everywhere. And now those are all like $150 a pop without the card and no weapon and a rubbed out face on eBay or something. It's really weird. Do you have a gutter? Gutter. Hi, guys. Glad you made past the 100th episode and that you were still going strong. Listening to episode 109, I still wonder, are you certain? No, we're not. We're never certain. Are you certain that Stan wrote all those credits slamming the letterers? My impression always was that these were done by the humble letterers themselves who wanted to give face to other people in the creative team, but pulled a prank on themselves in order not to seem arrogant. Yet, I might have gotten this completely wrong all the time. I have no idea. I'm not claiming I know anything about who was in charge of the letters. Yeah, honestly, I feel like it was never intended as a slam on the letters. Whether Stan was writing it or the letters were coming up with it themselves, mm-hmm. I'm sure it was all in good fun. Because it mm-hmm. happens so much. Um, and the idea that the letters were being self-deprecating, sure. I- I'll-, I'll totally buy that for a dollar. You know, if we believe that Stan just 
came up with generic plots or maybe even at this point is barely doing that, then he probably wasn't micromanaging the credits. The credit box. Sex box so much. But who knows? Okay, later in the episode, you asked how all these long underground tunnels and big structures come into being. Spider-Man in the tunnel in the Master Planner saga, for instance. Well, now you know how Mole Man earns his living. Since his raids on the surface world are typically not that successful, he certainly likes himself a second course of income. Source of income. <laughs> that makes sense like that because, idea. geez, all those raids are always very tunnel-related for him, too, so... Uh, and until our true heroes, John and Mike, make it to the 500 mark, make mine ours marvel. Cheer. Zuh. From Germany. Does that mean you're going to stop after 500? Because I know. Seriously. Are stick we going to stop after 500? Stick with us. No. Dude, that 500 like is... 1969, maybe. Right. That's nine and a half years of podcasting. <laughs> can you imagine doing this for nine and a half years? I can't even imagine doing it as long as we've already done it. So at this point, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just going with it. <laughs> Every uh, week is a miracle, folks. Yeah. That's not true. It's, it's still fun. But the idea of thinking about years and years ahead is a little bit daunting. Well, if you do that, that's when you get discouraged and stop probably. So probably. one week at a time. Let's not do that. You want me to okay. do uh, the Yancing one also, or do you have a different one? Uh, yeah, I, I pronounce it Yassine, but Yassine. however you want to say it. Yancing Streeter? Yassine Streeter? Um, this is for episode 48, so we're going back. Regarding Daredevil number one, hi, John and Mike. Oh, I had already tweeted you about it, but never heard you talk about it on air, so here we go. Yeah, that's because tweets just don't make it here, probably. Daredevil number one has been officially credited to Bill Everett, but it's now public knowledge that Bill Everett was so late that Steve Ditko got a call in to finish the issue. He did finishing art and inks, especially on the back half of the issue. Some of the books even mention Saul Brodsky, Stan's right-hand man and Marvel production coordinator, as an uncredited inker on this issue. And then he links a book, but I don't know what the book is. Let me see. Let's see if I can just do that really fast. The book is American Comic Book Chronicles, 1960 to 1964. I've heard of that. Marvel even officially admitted this fact. My issue of Daredevil Essentials number one. Oh, I'm sorry. Marvel even officially admitted to this fact. My issue of Daredevil Essentials number one has the following credit for DD number one. Illustrations, Bill Everett and Steve Ditko. Keep up the great podcast. And by the way, Michael's summary of Daredevil number 12, Ramita's first issue had me cracking up. Thanks again for all these great hours of entertainment. Boy, I guess we didn't know that. And now I kind of want to look back at Daredevil number one and see if you can see any Ditko in there. It does make sense, though, why Everett ended up not doing the second issue and only doing the first one. Yeah. Um, he's done more work. We've seen him on some... Recently. Yeah. I'm trying to remember now what it was that he did. But we have seen his name in the comics, so hopefully Hulk? he's... Hulk sounds right. No, we just started doing Buscema on Hulk. Oh, yeah. Shoot. I don't remember. It was something recent. But it's okay. Yeah. Hopefully he's got his stuff together, whatever's keeping him from working, he's getting taken care of. Mm-hmm. I say this in the present tense, like it's not 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so comments from Tim Price, dated May 24th. Mm-hmm. This is episode 110, and I'll form the head. Okay. Tales of Suspense 74, Iron Man versus Enervated Happy Hogan. See, I just realized that Happy has a cousin in the wrestling world, Crusher Hogan, so the Innervator released Happy's inner wrestler. Oh, wait, Roy Thomas isn't writing these comics yet, so never mind. 
But they should be related, right? I would think I, so. I don't think they actually are, but they should be. Because especially should be. the way Happy used to be. Mm-hmm, with the with boxer, the yeah. Yeah, the cauliflower ear and the boxer and all that stuff. Oh, my God. The two of them could totally be brothers or something. And um, it's in the future for listeners, but have you read the next um, the next Iron Man yet where you see Happy and the Mandarin? No, I haven't. Yeah, his uh, his I thought his boxer self helped him present a lot of attitude there, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. Uh, dang, Pepper must work out to drag around armored Tony like that. You go, girl. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Cat versus the sleepy head. I couldn't remember how this... Oh, the sleepy head? Uh-huh. Uh, I couldn't remember how this ended from the cartoon version, but it must have been the same. And as a kid, I loved it. Cap jumping out of a plane, blowing up the sleepers with a blowtorch. It's exciting, and David versus Goliath. But yeah, it doesn't hold up. Maybe part of the problem is, as you guys have noted before, smaller panels for big moments. The big finish was crammed into the last couple of pages... Whereas when I watched on TV, it was one image on the screen at a time. I have to think that increases the power of the moment. Probably. Well, that and the Red Skull's whole plan to take over the whole universe after he dies is these sleepers that Cap can take out by himself with a blowtorch. That's mm. not that hard. Well, he was building robots in 1940, 1945. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Seems like any plane could have just shut it down with a missile. Probably. <laughs> Although, honestly, robots in 1960, something are probably not going to be that much better. Yeah, probably. Did anybody else feel like this ending was a callback to Cap and Bucky trying to stop that plane, which got Cap frozen and Bucky, quote, killed? Except here, Cap escapes. Hmm. He, I don't think it's, he's ever had any, like, you know, phobia of falling off of planes since. That might be a cool little character beat. But Yeah, it doesn't seem to be like a PTSD moment or anything for him. No, we just literally read an issue where uh, the super adaptoid tossed him into the air and he was falling to his death. And at no point did he say, oh, man, again? Turns out, um, movie cap hates to take the train. <laughs> yeah. The Avengers 24. I knew of Kang, but the first Kang story I read was 20 years after this. It introduced the Council of Kangs, and Ravana was still in that tube. Tube? I'm sorry, but how hard was he trying to revive her? Uh, we oh, don't see her get put right. in the tube. Oh, but she did die, or, you know, almost die in the end of that story, huh? Mm-hmm. That's right. So for the rest of his life, he's trying to find a way to revive her, kind of like Superboy was trying to find a way to cure Monel's lead poisoning, or as uh, in he never did, or Mister Freeze and his wife and all that stuff. Right, right. Or um, Peter Parker trying to resurrect Uncle Ben. Well, Ben's dead though. Ben's dead. Oh, yeah. Zed's dead, baby. <laughs> Zed's dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, you have all of time and space at your fingertips, Kang. You know what it is. Kang the Conqueror, not the Caretaker. In spite of his super science, he's a jock with a time machine. Oh my god, Kang is evil Flash Gordon! <laughs> Does Flash Gordon time travel? I don't know. I've never read it. I don't think he time travels, but no, I think the idea just... of having a ship that lets him go back and forth. Yeah. But this guy does time instead. Mm -hmm. The Fantastic 447, the constitution of the Inhumans must be... Whoever wears the crown is king. Yep. Because seriously, Maximus had the crown. Everybody acting like he's sincerely the king. Black Bolt just <laughs> takes the crown. That's all. And now he's the king. Now I'm picturing a spy versus spy comic of Black Bolt and Maximus <laughs> taking the crown from each other. <laughs> Insert bomb emoji here. Yep. That's how that went. However, the issue was a slog. Those pages where Thing is fighting Dragon Man near Alicia read like the sappiest, melodramatic romance comic dialogue. I was about to lose it. 
I know Stan lays it on thick, but for pity's sake, shut up and give me my fight seeds. That's a long time coming, I think. Yeah. Also, he has a big point. Yeah. I've seriously given up on the Inhumans. So is Mike. Yep. Done. Writing them off. I really thought their intro would be epic, but this confusing mess has completely turned me off, which is disappointing because they're such a big deal with the FF over the years. I just hope they'll turn around later. File the Inhumans right next to Vulture. Mm. See, I still like them, but I can't say why. Because mm. honestly, right now they're just trying to get out of their bubble and it takes a really long time it's to do really, it. It's a really, really long time. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 33. Yes, the Spider-Man moment. I was aware of it before the first time I ever read this issue. But I think the first time I saw it as an homage was in Peter Porker's Spectacular Spider-Ham. I love Spider-Ham. Our ham manages to completely stand up holding the rubble and it all crashes around him. And he's left holding just that wedge-shaped piece. (laughs) Pretty hilarious. That should happen (laughs) way more in comic books. Yes. Superman lifts a building, accidentally yes. lifts only corner. <laughs> yes, that's that's what should happen. Can ISO 36 take away Spider-Man's powers? I was wondering the same thing. Sometime in the future, Hobgoblin uses a chemical to take away his spider sense. Yes, I know who actually discovered the formula. Maybe the secret ingredient is ISO 36? Whoa. Mm. Until next time, or until improves his mask with a mustache... Make mine, make ours. Oh, that's not fair if you leave a whole word out. Yeah, he forgot the subject of that sentence. Who's going to improve his mask with a mustache? Kang. I'm going to say Kang. Yeah, it has to be Kang. I think I've seen that. I think I've seen Kang with the mustache. Very, uh, very serious Cesar Romero of him. Uh, okay. Ernest M. Jackson? Ernest M. Jackson. The Inhumans are boring. Hey, we're really starting a group here. They have an entire city of superpowered people hiding from the world that would fear and hate them, but couldn't come up with a decent storyline. I believe mostly because they only focus on the royal family. They mess up palace intrigue type stories by only ever having Black Bolt's brother as an antagonist. He gets to keep coming back just like Loki and Asgard. Another issue with the Inhumans that has plagued several different characters over the decades, looking at you, Namer, Guardians of the Galaxy, is that when some writer does have a good idea for a story with them, it goes right back to being boring by the second or third arc, and then the book gets canceled. To answer Mike's questions about Lockjaw, at one point, it becomes canon that he was an inhuman that became Lockjaw during Terra Genesis, but that is later retconned by having it all be a joke Gorgon and Thing told people about Lockjaw. I believe they didn't want to portray the inhumans as treating a person like they do a dog or a horse, But then that brings up a little problem of the Alpha Primitives. I think the Alpha Primitives were once described as wanting to be in a permanent underclass the same way the elves were portrayed in Harry Potter. But I also think there was once a story about them fighting for freedom, but I'm not totally sure. I'm not sure. I remember the Alpha Primitives fighting for freedom. I don't remember them wanting to be. I don't. I remember them in the Handbook of the Marvel Universe, and I don't think I've ever read a story with Alpha Primitives. I, I want to say it's in the Avengers. Okay. But at some point, the Alpha Primitives, which is basically a slave race that the uh, Inhumans have, they fight for their freedom. Well, then that's problematic, isn't it? Just a bit. Just a bit. Um, Blaine Dowler, Answering Machines. Go ahead. Hey, guys, at two different podcasts. In episode 111 of Make Ours Marvel, you wondered aloud if the X-Men invented answering machines in 1966. 
Michael found records of a failed answering machine from 1949 that cost $200 at the time, so it appeared to have priced itself out of the market. The idea of having one in 1966 is not that outlandish. By 1974, answering machines were cheap enough and common enough that the Rockford Files had a gag with Rockford's answering machine message in the start of every episode. I remember that somehow, even I though I wasn't there's born a bit yet. Of a, there's a bit of a gap between 66 and 74. There is. Especially for stuff like Radio Shack level technology, because all of that was really, you know, developing during that time. Think about everything that we had as children or didn't have as children that we have now. Mm-hmm. I think about that sometimes when I'm watching my children on their, you know, YouTube phones and stuff like, oh, my God, we had none of this. And it's, right. And I'm only like in my 40s. So it's not like my entire lifetime to get to this point. Very fast. I don't think, I don't think my son actually has a conception of scheduled broadcast TV. Yes. I've tried to explain it, but I don't think he actually gets it. They don't know what a commercial is. No idea. Or mm. when we are watching something with a commercial, they ask, how come we can't fast forward this? Right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the first regular episode after the successful pilot movie had someone leave the message, Jim, it's Norma at the market. It bounced. You want us to tear it up, send it back, or put it with the others? Which strongly implies the answering machines were no longer considered particularly expensive items. This message has been carbon copied to the hosts of Hold My Order, Terrible Disaster. Oh, Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser, a wonderful podcast about WKRP in Cincinnati, because one of the hosts specializes in the history of telephones. No, that is not a joke. I didn't find that podcast until they'd already covered the entire series, and I listened as my wife and I binge-watched that excellent sitcom, wrapping it up before they went into reruns a few weeks ago. Whether they are willing and able to educate us all on the availability of commercial answering machines, I would recommend anyone check out both their podcast and the sitcom they cover. I can count the sitcoms that hold my attention beyond one season on two hands, and the original WKRP is very near the top of that list. I remember WKRP in Cincinnati. That was a fun show. Absolutely. I was wondering why he said hi guys at two different podcasts in the beginning. I was trying so to under- I, I was trying to understand that joke and I thought I just wasn't getting it, but Well there you go. Until Toad gets his own amusement park funded by the X-Men's Angel Make Mine Marvel. Oh, and I almost forgot Booger. Oh, because that's WKRP. Um, okay, so, so I'm gonna wait. have to add WKRP to my list. One of the hosts specializes in the history of telephones. I wanna know how and what meant or how this is does he just talk about it occasionally or has he written books or something? Because you know what's interesting is I have been uh, marathoning James Bond lately on weekends. Mm-hmm. And especially those 60s ones, man, I'm kind of like drooling over some of those telephones. Oh, And it's yeah. just like getting me thinking like now I kind of want to know the histories of telephones because now all we have are these dumb cell phones. And back then they had these really cool giant, you know, aqua colored things with big cords and you rotary dials. It's like, man, I kind of miss that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of neat. So, yeah. What's the history of telephones? I'm down. Let's figure this out. Okay. And huh? WKRP in Cincinnati started in what year? 1978. Wow. Went to Whoa. 82. So, I guess all of my memories of WKRP were reruns. Oh, I would have been... It started when? 78? Yeah, I probably don't Not, remember things from like being three. But 82, right. maybe I could remember the original. It, or maybe it was just reruns. I don't know. Lonnie Anderson, that's all we remember. And and the guy, the one hippie DJ guy. Yeah, the howler, whatever his name was. I can't remember now, but he was like he was basically the fun of the show. All right. John Morrissey, June Tim 6th. Tim Price. Okay. I got a Tim Price for May 29th. Oh, that's better. Well, not better. It's sooner. It's early. Yeah, earlier. Okay, well, let me do this one. Okay. Episode 111, Kirby Trollbongs. <laughs> 
<laughs> I agree. All of the issues this month were pretty great. Now I can dive in and tease them. The X-Men 17. Fantastic final reveal. Splash page of Magneto. Finally, they're getting it. Loved it. Then I had to think of something silly. Magneto shoots the X-Men into space and goes back into the mansion. What was the point? Magneto, house hunting is such a drag. I'll just stay here. Wonder if there's any Yoo-Hoo in the fridge. What? The doorbell? Oh, man. I just took off my boots and gloves. It's obvious why Iceman is sick. He's got a cold. He's got a cold. Very, okay, next issue. <laughs> Daredevil 13. I've usually heard this metal dissolving version of vibranium called Antarctic vibranium. This makes more sense when they establish Kazar firmly in the Savage Land, which hasn't happened yet as far as I can tell. Was I just assuming he was in the Savage Land? I don't know. I thought we learned the Savage Land was Antarctica. Gosh, I don't this? remember. So confusing. Um, yeah, I don't know. So a worldwide spy network can activate in a heartbeat. Hydra can too. And Baron Mordo's army of demons that pursued Doctor Strange. Is everyone a member of a worldwide secret network in the 60s? I know I was. It is hidden in Antarctica. Whether we learned that in our reading or we just somehow knew that in hindsight, I don't know. Journey into Mystery 125. Hercules being Hercules was amazing. They nailed the himbo party boy personality already. So cool. Too bad we don't get to see Herc and Thor fight since this is the last issue. Bummer. Kirby Trollbongs, R-O-F-L. I remember R-O-F-L. Nobody ever says R-O-F-L anymore. Yeah. I said Rafflecopter to my kids. They looked at me like I was weird. Talk to Astonished... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Talk to Astonished... Tales from Astonished 77. With Namor seeing the drill into the ocean floor, I was surprised his assumption was peaceful scientific exploration. <laughs> I immediately assumed oil rig. So I just looked it up and variations of offshore oil rigs began in the early 1900s and probably would be in full swing by the 60s. Now that would have justified a full on Imperius Rex smash fest, but not having the Pims on board. They're back in Astonish. Yay. I just wonder if they watered down uh, the story on purpose <laughs> or maybe an environmental angle wasn't a thing yet. Tim, never stop the puns. Keep them coming. I want the pain. <laughs> Hulk versus Executioner was fun, but I was struggling to see Exe hold his own against Hulk. Your theory that he has powers of the other Asgardians really appeals to me. I'd love to know if that's the case and have more questions answered about this future, but I don't think I want more stories because it's not great. Just generic dystopian world. Ugh. But there's a guy with an axe ruling it, so it's gotta be good. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's the Executioner. Ouch. What kind of body spray does he use? Hey, where did you guys come up with that? Banner learns his future self rules the world and is horrible and has trophies of superheroes thing. Who would come up with such an imperfect future? Capital letters. Don't think too hard about my sign-off bits. I started collecting Amazing Spider-Man and Avengers in the early 200s, so you won't get to them real soon, but I'm sure you'll get to them. Until next time, or until the X-Men and Magneto live in the mansion together, make mine, make ours Marvel. I got that one. Yeah. That's like several years in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Okay, what's next? Uh, your John Morris email. Okay, guys, I beg you, please stop being so funny. Nope. Your unfettered wit makes me laugh so hard that I am at risk of ripping my pancreas. Case in point, episode 111 and your synopsis of the backup story in Journey into Mystery 125. Your collective quipping was so clever that a portion of it became the title of this episode, Kirby Trollbongs. To paraphrase... 
while you both were interjecting your unique brand of humor over John's synopsis of the backup tale, you said that meanwhile, below decks, Loki is talking to the Red Ghost and Deathlock, who have little bong, because I guess MJ is poisonous to trolls. It was at this point that tears were streaming down my face, urine was streaming down my leg, and my pancreas was in danger of ripping apart as I howled with laughter. So please, guys, I beg you, please stop being so funny. Until John and Mike lose their sense of humor, make mine marvels. Well, that's just a mixed message right there. Yeah, also, I think you should take better care of your pancreas. Maybe go to the restroom more often, because right? sounds like you were holding it too long. Also, I think we missed an email from him. Did Do we? you have, why is uh, Hank so jerky? I don't. <gasps> so I remember whenever you were getting emails that I wasn't getting, and now I'm getting emails <sighs> that you don't get. I don't know. I think Gmail always likes to recategorize emails for me, mm-hmm. like doing me a favor, and I don't think it helps. Yeah, I hate whenever computers try to do you favors that are really unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll read, Why is Hank so jerky from John Morrissey? Okay. Michael and I share your disappointment concerning the return of Hank and Janet to the pages of Tales to Astonish for the same reason as you. Why was he being so jerky? Yeah, very. And not the not the yummy, spicy, beefy kind either. No. I mean, if Hank is yummy or spicy or beefy, I don't want to know about it. Well, Wanda thinks, or Wanda, Jan thinks he is. <laughs> Maybe one day occasionally, too. Who knows what happens? That's the 60s. All those women are interchangeable. (laughs) Okay, we can go there, too. (laughs) (laughs) However, I'll toss on my marine biologist's hat once again and suggest why Hank was drilling into the seafloor at that location and why he could not just move to a new spot to avoid trouble with Namor. Mm -hmm. And herein lies an aspect of the story that pleases me as a marine scientist to no end. The story was very timely. Or was it very Atlas? Sorry, dad joke. You see, after 100 years of speculation, it was in the 1960s that we first collected unequivocal evidence to support the hypothesis that continental positions were not fixed on the globe. That all continents were, in fact, drifting around the surface of the planet. I won't bother to describe what initiated that hypothesis around the turn of the last century. Hello, Sarah Century. Hey. Another dad joke. But I'll tell you what was going on in the 1960s. Okay, I'm very intrigued. Bring it on, John. The 1960s were when we finally developed the technology to test this hypothesis. If new seafloor material was being created along mid-oceanic ridges and then spreading away from the center of each ocean, thus pushing continental masses around, then rocks in the center of the ocean would be younger than the seafloor rocks along the continental margins. And because lots of things live and die in the water column above the seafloor, lots of dead things eventually sink to the seafloor and accumulate in ever deeper and deeper layers of ooze. Yes, that is the technical term for the goo on the bottom of the ocean. If new seafloor material is... I have never, ever once in my life considered the fact that the bottom of the sea is covered in dead animal ooze. Mm. Never thought about that. Yeah, I guess they got to go somewhere. I guess so. If new seafloor material is being created along mid-oceanic ridges, then the depth of the accumulated ooze at the younger center of the ocean will be thinner than the layer of ooze closer to the continents. So how does one test these predictions? Well, you have to drill. You drill into the seafloor to determine how deep the ooze is and to radiometrically date, i.e. carbon date, the rocks under the ooze. 
In this way, in the 1960s, we demonstrated that the seafloor in the center of ocean basins is young and covered with a thin layer of ooze, i.e. dead stuff, and that the seafloor closer to the continents was older, about 200 million years older, and that it was covered by a much thicker layer of ooze that had accumulated over a long period of time. Are you still with me? What does this have to do with Hank Pibbs drilling? Well, the point is, mm-hmm. Stan Lee must have been watching the news. Mm. He was aware of the first few drilling operations. Hank and Janet must have been participating in the early stages of the deep sea drilling program, which crisscrossed the Atlantic very systematically, drilling core samples at specific locations, looking for conclusive evidence of the seafloor spreading hypothesis, and consequently, for plate tectonics and continental drift. So they couldn't just move and drill elsewhere, but that still doesn't mean that Hank needed to be a jerk about it. Okay, marine science class dismissed. I hope I didn't bore you <laughs> drilling another dad joke the point is this is a very timely story um i love that i think that's fantastic it doesn't excuse anything but no sure. and having hank pym there is a is a biophysicist for the biological component of that with the um you know carbon dating the the people the mm-hmm. the, the you know fossil not fossil remains but animal remains anyways until someone carbon dates ben Grimm's rocks make mine make ours marvel well, that's easy. 1961. Exactly. Anyway. Okay. So now what? Um, now I have either Tim Price, where the flirk is the flirkin. Okay. Or a Facebook comment. Well, do Facebook because I don't have that. And then I'll do Tim Price. Okay. Unless so, he's, wait, hold on. Let me scour this and make sure he doesn't make me do any impressions first. Then you could do Tim Price. I think, I, I think it's safe. Okay. Okay. Um, Blaine wrote us a comment about the Fantastic Four film that we covered back in the day. Oh, wait, with him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So he's like, I remember speculating about something like this in our talk about the movie. Here's the article. The Fantastic Four director pitched a Black Susan Storm, but got heavy pushback. So in the Fantastic Four film, for those of you who don't know, the Storm family was African-American and... Sue was a Kosovo refugee adoptee. Um, they cast a white blonde woman for the part, but they had wanted to cast her as a black actress, and the studio pushed back. Mm. Um, Josh Trank says there were a lot of controversial conversations that were had behind the scenes. I was mostly interested in a Black Sue Storm, a Black Johnny Storm, and a Black Franklin Storm. But when you're dealing with a studio on a massive movie like that, everybody wants to keep an open mind to who the big stars are going to be. Maybe Margot Robbie or something like that. When it came down to it, I found a lot of pretty heavy pushback on casting a black woman in that role. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it wouldn't have made the movie any better or worse anyway. They should have just let him do what he wants. Uh, Okay. Tim Price. June 7th, Sergeant Fury number 27, lo, there shall come an eye patch. Sorry, that's what I think Stan should have named this. I hope some medical listeners will chime in because this, this explanation makes no flirking sense. I don't think anybody did chime in about that, but that's because there's nothing to chime in about. <laughs> TOS number 75, I really didn't like when Iron Man's thoughts called Happy the Freak. Yes, there were plenty of moments of concern and fear over happy state, but actually thinking that word, ooh, you're a bad friend, Tony, it doesn't help that I am not liking this storyline. Please let it end soon. Was someone that desperate to have the Watcher back in this book to do this to Happy? Ugh. 
Luckily, it does not last very long, and it makes no significant impact on anything. And yeah, it's over. Just like Hulk time traveling. Watch Sad Cap Sad. Up all the sads. But man, this was cool. First appearance of Batrick, Peggy, and Sharon. Pretty much nailed down Batrick's character from day one, and there's no need to change later. Loved it. Mm-hmm. If, this, if this is the first time we've seen Steve wear his shield under a suit in the Silver Age comics, seriously, how does that work? The shield is big and bulgy, and nobody notices. Oh, wait, the people in the 60s are maybe too polite to say anything. Mommy, that guy has a hump. Shush, Timmy, don't stare. He's probably a hunchback. But what if this was an X-Men comic? Look at the guy with the camelback. He's a mutie. Get him. I just always thought about the fact that, like, wow, he must have really broad shoulders. Well, of course he does, but that's still not going to work. I don't know. And also, I would like to think whether it's the 60s or not the 60s, we would tell our children to not point and proclaim that someone has a hump. But, hey, yeah. we all have different parenting styles, I guess. I'd only read one Cap comic with Sh- – I've only read one Cap comic with Sharon back in the 70s, long before I started collecting regularly. So I also didn't know about her as part of Steve's cast. So I'm looking forward to more. We haven't got more, which is kind of a bummer, but maybe soon. Okay. Yeah, it'll be soon. I read it for our next recording. Okay. Strange Tales 142. The nods between Cap in Suspense and Fury's shield is great. We've already made the universe feel tight. Love it. I'm not really digging Mentolo and the Fixer as threats. I could maybe buy them more as trying to attack a specific group within S.H.I.E.L.D., like just the ESP division, not the entire organization. Let's see what next issue brings. It brings worse. Sorry. (laughs) He's really, like, gelling with us these days, this Tim guy, man. Yeah. Anyway, about the ESP division, that one guy is still holding his pipe. Does he ever smoke it? Or is his body holding perfectly still while wired up? And when they get to take a break, he's like, ugh, my arm is killing me, Jerry. I told you to turn on the machine after I put my pipe down. It's not funny, Jerry. Maybe Maybe it's a prosthetic arm. Yeah. Pipe man. Doctor Strange alternating between his body and astral form was pretty cool, but I call shenanigans. He's been able to cast spells from his astral state before that affect the real world. I'm sure it's just because of the plot, so that's disappointing. And you guys thought of the same Superman can't see through lead analogy I was thinking of in regards to how Strange found the non-mystical bomb. Yeah, I collected all of Burns' Superman. Sweet. (laughs) Me too at one point. I collected all of Burns' everything at one point. One of the few guys like I collected because of creator versus character. Anyway, The Avengers 25. Did this issue also get adapted into the Marvel Superheroes cartoon, specifically Cap series? I'm pretty sure it did. I really did. I really need to try and rewatch those, but oh, finding the time. I don't well, think yeah. so. Cuz I did rewatch them or I watched them all through a year ago and I don't I don't think that Doom story was in there. We might rewatch them for this show and then you're going to have to rewatch them. <gasps> ha ha ha. We'll make you rewatch them. Uh I think I reread the two big Iron Man slash Doctor Doom stories last year from Iron Man number 150 and 250. Both have time travel, and the second is definitely a sequel to the first. I wouldn't say that Doom focuses on magic when he faces Iron Man, as his ego makes him want to out-tech Tony. Doom is second to no one in his own mind. I a diva. I totally relate to Hawkeyes. I need to stop saying jerky things while continuing to say jerky things. Suffering from chronic foot and mouth disease myself, I feel you, Hawk. Yeah. That's a good point. Foot and mouth disease. I don't think that's what foot and mouth disease means. (laughs) Is there there a hand, foot, mouth disease? Isn't that a thing? Uh, 
foot and mouth disease? That just means you say things you shouldn't say, right? No, I know that's what he means by it, but I feel like that's an actual thing. Like, oh. hand, foot, mouth disease. I don't know. I'm going to look this know. up. Okay. Wasp and next issue. Glee. Until next time, or until Batrick Batroc takes Captain America prisoner to help fight Mr. Hyde. I just read this recently, and it's awesome. Make my make ours marvel. That is awesome. Speaking of John Byrne. Okay, yes. Stern. HFMD, hand, foot, and mouth disease, oh. is a common contagion among small children. Anyone can get it, but it's very common with small children because it spreads very easily. It's just uh, basically looks like a rash or a series of sores on the uh, skin. And since small kids, hands, feet, and mouths are constantly touching everything, mm-hmm. that's how it spreads. But I don't, I'm just, I'm saying I don't want to give Tim credit for coming up with foot and mouth disease because that's a pretty common expression for saying the stupid stuff oh. on accident. Um, I've heard the phrase, you know, um, put your foot in your mouth and that, that idiom, but never the phrase foot in mouth disease. I've never mm. heard that before. Okay. That's fun though. Yeah. Blaine? Uh, maybe. Okay. Um, I have a Scott McFadden. When's your Blaine? June 12th. Oh, okay. So Scott McFadden is June 9th. Okay. Tales of Suspense 75 and the Marvel Superheroes cartoons. Hi, Michael and John. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now, but at last I've caught up so I can now listen in real time. That is both a blessing and a curse. Uh-huh. I want to let you know how much I've been enjoying your reflections on these early Marvel comics and your interplay with one another. It's great fun to listen to. You would not believe how long it takes to script these episodes ahead of time. <laughs> so- we're really good oh, at yeah. making it sound natural. Yeah, yeah, we're super prepared. <laughs> Recent episodes have nearly brought have really brought back a lot of great memories for me. I know that John has mentioned streaming some of the old Marvel superheroes cartoons from the '60s. I'm old enough to have seen those when they were shown on television, Ooh. not quite in their original run, but in the mid '70s when they were pretty widely syndicated in the afternoons. Mm. Okay, I didn't know that they were syndicated in the '70s, like on reruns, but that makes total sense because I've heard. Um, other podcasters who were children in the 70s say that they saw them. Yeah, so, I don't know if I know that either. Those cartoons, along with the original Spider-Man cartoon, were my first encounter with these characters. I did see the Spider-Man cartoon as a kid. That was oh, the yeah. reruns of the 80s. Oh, yeah. I saw the cartoons before I ever read any Marvel comics. While I don't really remember the details, the stories you've been covering lately, Cap versus the Sleepers, Happy Hogan turning into the Freak, Thor's fight with Hercules, stand out vividly in my memory. Um... The period you're covering now is the period that most of these animated episodes were taken from, and it's fun to revisit them along with you. I don't think Happy Hogan... I mean, he may have been, because that was an Iron Man story, but I don't remember seeing it. Hmm. Oh, well. I'm not going to say he's wrong. I just remember it. Primitive as those cartoons were, animation-wise, I still look back on them with great fondness. They're probably responsible for my becoming a Marvel fan. That's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Tales They're pretty of fantastic. Seven- it, it, it takes once you get used to the animation because the animation is a bit of a throw off at the first. Once you get used to it, it becomes pretty easy to ignore. It's kind of uh, like the fact it's, that it's it's like it's like you know when you have audiobooks. It's like an audiobook for comic books, kind of. Except there's visuals, I guess. But yeah, but like you just think of it as a comic book, and it's like a comic book come to life. You don't have to flip the pages. Kind of neat. It's pretty pretty great. Mm-hmm. Tales of Suspense seventy five. Cap's first encounter with Batroc is one that I have very strong memories of. I always loved Batrock, silly as he was, and I was intrigued by the whole mystery woman from Cap's past storyline, which seemed deeper than a lot of the stories that you usually got in those days. The Iron Man story with Happy as the Freak wasn't as good, but as I say, I do remember it strongly. Looking forward to Ultimo, who should be coming along pretty soon. 
He did. He came along, and he went. It wasn't it, bad. It was just a fight. It'll be interesting if we could figure out whether the freak was translated to that cartoon or not. Because if not, that means his brain is like taking a comic he's read and animating it and thinking he saw it. Which is about the highest level of animation that show achieved anyway. Right. So I could easily see that happening. Like, I think I remember that animated, but it's all basically panels. One thing I did get a chuckle out of in his recap, Michael correctly noted that Cap doesn't have a parachute as he's falling into the ocean. The funny thing is that if you look back to the end of Suspense 74, Cap did have a parachute. One of the final images oh, is Cap parachuting yeah, yeah. to safety while the sleeper explodes. Somehow, mm-hmm. between 74 and 75, his parachute vanished. One of the early Marvel continuity errors. Thanks again for the podcast. I'm enjoying it immensely. Maybe the fire from the sleeper caught the yeah. silk. Explosion trapnel just like blew a hole in it. He had to abandon it or something. I like that because he needed to like he needed to uh, you know do what he did in this latest issue we covered and angle himself properly or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. What's next, Blaine? Blaine. Hair and nails growing back. Hi guys. In your tenth mailbag, you talk about how hair and nails grow back with healing characters. I found this online. Now before I read how he's going to maybe fix our issue, I remember us talking about this. And our thing is, like, hair and nails are constantly growing. So if you heal, why don't healing characters just constantly have hair and nails growing all the time, right? And also, why do the hair grow back to the exact same haircut you had? Especially Wolverine, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so here's what he found online. Nails and hair are essentially made up of a tough, protective protein called keratin. While the hair grows in a hair follicle, nails grow from the matrix, the base of the nail bed. Both the hair follicle and the nail matrix are made of epithelial cells and will continue to grow as long as they receive nutrition and remain healthy. As the epithelial epithelial cells epithelial with, epithelial cells within the follicle and matrix multiply, the older cells are pushed out upwards through your skin. They die and harden, thus turning into hair or nails. This process, called keratinization makes your hair and nails grow. This tells me that hair and nails are made of dead tissues. True, they are made of tissues that die right where hair and nails grow in normal people. But if you have advanced healing abilities, you must have an abnormal way to deal with the dead and damaged cells from your wounds. In my headcanon, characters with healing factors regrow hair and nails quickly because that's where the dead and damaged cells are going when the new healthy cells grow in their place. As a physicist and not a biologist, I can bask in the glow of the Dunning-Kruger effect and tell myself this makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Sure. (laughs) I like it. And you can imagine that each healer might have a different way of processing their healing. So maybe that's why Wolverine always has lamb chops and somebody else wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe his lamb chops is part of his mutation. Maybe. He is a Wolverine, after all. You say that like it's not a real animal. Yeah. Well, it is, I swear. <laughs> Although okay, technically Tim- I've never seen one. So how do I know? Tim Price wrote it on my birthday. Thank you, Tim. Episode 113. G stands for num 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 num. The Fantastic Four 48. I first read this story in an FF Treasury edition when I was a kid, which cut out the beginning pages, so none of the Inhuman story was shown at all. That treasury is long gone, sob. But I think page one had the cover at the top and had the first two panels of the Silver Surfer in space at the bottom. That's a 
that layout makes sense. Mm-hmm. The other change is a few pages later where Johnny's dialogue changes slightly from break through the barrier to free the inhumans, giving a little context of why the FF are flying in a plane. An interesting approach to make the treasury seem like a complete package, since as you guys have noted plenty, lots of Marvel's comics were this continuing format where stories flow one to the next without issues. Now, I did get a separate trade collection as a teenager, which is also long gone, dang it. That reprint- Stop throwing away your comics, Tim. God, you have one job. Uh, it reprinted the issue in all of its glory, and that was when I learned about the removed pages. Isn't that fascinating? Hmm. Um... Oh, fine. Watcher and Reed be jerks. Galactus cool, but those awful colors. He was recolored purple in the above reprints. Yes, Big G is established as being different sizes. For me, the first time was FF 242 through 244, the Terax Galactus trilogy, where he shrunk because he was low on energy. Oh, no. Galactus suffers from shrinkage. Amazing Spider-Man 34, the Craven part was fine, but I've been thinking more about Peter, Gwen, and his classmates. As a shy nerd myself, I totally sympathize with major social awkwardness of teenagers and not knowing what to say or how to say it, so not saying anything. Now, it doesn't quite pan out, as Peter has come out of that shell ever since getting his powers, but Peter has always been the hero I sympathize with the most, so I can't help but project onto him. Phew, Gwen is certainly not a great person, and has the classic femme fatale look. And Ditko makes her so gorgeous, suckered in by a pretty face. I should know better at my age. Arr. The X-Men 18, Magneto cloning his own mutants? That's pretty sinister, mister. <laughs> if we ever get to Mr. Sinister, I hope I remember to use that as the title. Yep. Oh my god, this issue was not good. Okay, <laughs> this was the this was the first issue of the X-Men that I felt was really sincerely bad. Yeah. The one where he's cloning them, uh, using the angel's parents to like clone oh, people yeah. in the... Well, and it came like, right off of that really good setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we've gone through a string of some some pretty pretty low that, bar that, X-Men issues. That was the last good one, was the setup. The one before it. Yeah, yeah. Um, You guys covered everything, but one of my pet peeves is that balloon. It went up almost to space, somehow didn't explode from the low outside air pressure, and comes right down to the mansion. Zero wind, moving it away. Zero change of location from the Earth's rotation. Gah. Daredevil 14. I don't mind DD in a new setting too much, especially when by happenstance. He happened mm-hmm. to be on a boat and got swept up into this adventure. Mm-hmm. I do mind when he reads something in the paper and thinks, Trouble in Madagascar? They need my help. Let me get on a plane and fly 37 hours and... Uh, oh, it's all over now. Yeah. But not but not help Spider-Man with Rhino, because that'd be... Because... <laughs> Spider-Man needs that first shot at Rhino. Yeah. He deserves it. Okay, Lord Plunder is a cosplayer. Let's review his looks. British Lord. Scientists. Pirate. Now supervillain with an unironically bad outfit. I fear when he becomes a furry and joins the Animen. The Adam. Yeah, the Animen. The uh, the animal people. Oh, okay. The furries from Daredevil. Ah. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Plunder. Plunder is a person. I'm getting weary of the Tony Pepper happy, I mean, Matt Karen Foggy love triangle. And yes, seeing practically the same thing in two comics makes it worse. Ugh. Yeah. It really is the same story, just being played out with different beats and different orders. Yep. I feel like Karen is more, I don't know, maybe more of a wistful person and Pepper's like more grounded and down to earth, but... Maybe. I could be reading into yeah, that. I don't but know. Other than, 
Other than that, it's pretty much pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Thanks for another great episode. Until next time, or until Galactus meets his ultimate challenge, the Impossible Man. Make mine, make ours, Marvel. Ooh, John's favorite. Yeah, uh, I don't dislike him as much as I feel like I've led to believe, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't like him. Uh, how about episode one thirteen, the Shocker? How about episode one thirteen, the Shocker? That's where John Morrissey calls you out as a Spider-Man Uh-oh. fan. So put put your Dukes up. Here we go. I'm ready to fight, man. John, 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 John. And here I thought that you were a Spidey fan, and I thought that issues 1 through 20 of Amazing Spider-Man were some of the most cherished mags of your youth. Well, apparently not. (gasps) Here we go. Ready? What factoid revealed in this episode contradicts the above? You have never read untold tales of Spider-Man. This is inconceivable. Do you know that it was written primarily by Kurt Busiek, the same man who penned Marvel's? Do you know that it dovetails perfectly with issues 1 through 20 and a bit beyond? Stop what you're doing, sit right down, and read those issues. Have I ever steered you wrong? So okay. Are you going to do so, that right now? Yeah, yeah, right now in the middle of the episode. Um, I didn't know they existed until I was doing my Amazing Spider-Man Classics podcast with Josh and Don. And the reason I haven't read them since then is very simple. I'm on a Spider-Man read-through, and I haven't gotten to the late 90s yet. The fact that my Spider-Man read-through is taking multiple years and is going very, very slowly is beside the point. Right. <laughs> um, but they're on the list. I plan to do it. It just hasn't happened yet. We'll get there. Heck, maybe we should do it for this show, if it tubtails that well. Just like uh, the Avengers ones we did. For some anniversary. Yeah, for like a special, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like okay. that. Until young Mary Jane seems spot until young Mary Jane sees Spider-Man climb out of Peter Parker's bedroom window, make mine make ours Marvel. We were just talking about that. Yeah, I know that one. Uh oh, he has another one. He's gonna call me out again. Okay. John, you promised you promised to tone down your sense of humor <laughs> so I wouldn't have to worry about rupturing myself while laughing myself silly, but you cannot help yourself, can you? Case in point. In X-Men 18, when Magneto has control of the mansion, he gets he greets Warren's parents at the door, and then he hypnotizes it with his magnetic attraction. You describe the scene as he makes them take off all their clothes. They have a threesome. It was at this point that I shot a mouthful of lemon-lime seltzer through my nose. <laughs> Do you see? <laughs> Your humor makes me unsafe. Until John Scott, Gene, Scott, and Logan have a threesome, make my makeup all. So, I'm mm. sorry that I uh, had you spit seltzer through your nose. That probably tingled, like, painfully. Um, Gene, Scott, and Logan having a threesome. So evidently, Hickman's X-Men run Mm -hmm. has totally embraced the horny subtext of X-Men. Okay, great. And like on the layout of their rooms, Mm -hmm. Gene has a room between Scott and Logan, Mm. and there are connecting doors. Wow. Between the three of them. Hmm. Just going to say. That means she could just waffle back and forth. It doesn't mean there was a threesome. This is true, but I like to embrace um, all of my orgy. Yeah. I just don't know if, possibilities. Scott, would, if Scott would be down with that, but I don't know. Definitely not teenage Scott. But, no. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have John Morrissey Galactus questions? I have Tim Price Steals the Show, June 15th. Oh. Um... No, I have one more before that. Okay. So, hello, purveyors of podcast perfection. In episode 113, you are covering Fantastic Four 48, the first appearance of The Big G. 
but Michael is surprised at his diminutive stature in the last panel, which led you to discuss how tall you've seen him in comics Mm -hmm. and what size he should be. John speculates that he appears to be maybe 15 to 18 feet tall in the issue, but he agrees with Michael that he's not the monster we usually think of. So what's the deal? How tall should he be? For such questions, I usually turn to Ohatmu, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which has been published and revised intermittently since the first series launched in 1983. The first run of Ohatmu states that his height should be 28 feet and 9 inches, but then adds that his height diminishes by as much as 10.9 feet when he is greatly in need of life-giving energy. So you're right. He does appear to be about 17 feet tall, but that's because he's famished. Mm-hmm. And why is he famished? Well, that brings us to another bit of debate you had about Galactus. John asked, why does Silver Surfer take Galactus across multiple galaxies looking for a planet to eat? Michael replied, right? How many planets are viable for him to eat? Presumably it has to be something that supports life. Then Michael concludes with, I wonder if someone explains that someday. Well, Ohatmu did. It states that Galactus requires biospheric energy obtainable only from a certain type of planet with life-bearing capacity in order to sustain his life. Class M. A suitable planet need not be one where life is present. It simply has to have the potential for life. Wow. Indeed, until Galactus encountered Earth, he had but once before consumed the energy of a planet inhabited by sentient life forms, which must have been the flashbacks that we saw. Just once? Just once. That seems inconceivable. In fact, the planet also needs to be orbiting a specific type of star. In FF48, the caption box on page 14, panel 1, is narrating Silver Surfer's journey and states that, And then at last he finds what he has been seeking. A sun. Our sun. A true G-type star. So I guess that is why Silver Surfer had to travel so far to find an acceptable planet for his master to consume. Had to be a specific type of planet orbiting a specific type of star, so when Galactus finally arrives, he's hungry. And short. Okay. It's I just, believe it. I just feel like it seems like the Marvel Universe has a lot of those kind of planets. Also feels like the amount of energy it would take to traverse those distances yeah. would be incalculably more than what he would get from eating a planet. Boy, people really like the size debate, though, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Until the Fantastic Four looks up to determine whether or not Galactus is going commando... <laughs> Never go commando in another man's fatigues. <laughs> All done. All right. Tim Price steals the show. I think so. I don't know. He do often we, does. Do we even want to read this one? It seems encouraging. I don't know. I don't know if we should encourage Tim. All right. Uh, he's paid the price. All right. John Morrissey writes, gentlemen, you've been dethroned. You are no longer the funniest guys on your podcast, at least not on mailbag number nine. Who is the aforementioned Mr. Price? Just a few of his priceless, zing- priceless zingers include. So now we're like repeating the mail of the mail. Okay. (laughs) And why is it always the lame Donald Blake? Does everyone have to rub it in that he's lame? It's probably on his TV ads. If you want a doctor who cares, come see me, lame Dr. Donald Blake. But I just have a bad leg. I'm not a bad doctor, really. And if you experience Thor tingle for more than 30 minutes, consult a goddess of healing and administer golden apples. And Tim's speculation about what would happen if the gray gargoyle touches the absorbing man was Tim Priceless. Conclusion. <gasps> Step up your game, gents. There's a new comedian in town. Until Shocker pees in the pool and turns out to be Hydro Man. Wow. Make mine, make ours marble. Don't pee in Hydro Man. Yeah. I don't think that would happen. Do you think Hydro Man takes a shower? Don't see why he would need to. Seeing it's not really there. 
And if, if he if he did maintain his form and got grimy, he could just water it up and then reform the water and be just him again. I don't even think like Sandman has to take a shower and he's not made of water, but like he's not made of anything really, right? That's what I think. He doesn't sweat anymore, does he? I don't think so. Okay. Um, great idea, John. Yep. From John Morrissey. Okay. All right. I'll be succinct. I want to help support your awesome show. In Mailbag 9, you are revisiting the Patreon possibility. It's been so many mailbags since then. But Michael honestly and reasonably stated that doing extra stuff for Patreon is difficult and feeling obligated as a drag. That's understandable. But then John provided the answer to our dilemma when he suggested a PayPal link on your site and jokingly said, here's a place to put money if you wish. Yes, this is what Comic Geek Speak does. And it must be working because they just posted episode 1774. Wow. Pretty pleased with sugar on top? Maybe have a PayPal link so that your fans can help you defray some of the costs of producing your show? Until Peter Parker steals and sells a solid gold notebook and then donates all the proceeds to your show, make my makers marvel. I remember that solid gold notebook story. I was just going to say that sounds really familiar to me. Okay. Was that a was that a Secret Wars thing? Secret Wars two maybe. Like like the Beyonder created a or just out of like to show yeah. off turned his notebook into solid gold. No, he turned an entire building into solid gold, and oh, Peter yeah. took the notebook out of the building. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, I think we should talk about having a PayPal link. All right. We'll 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 look into it, John. Thank you. Uh, I have Tim Price, not comic special twenty six. Oh boy, Barbarella. <laughs> um, on June twentieth, and just yes, June twentieth. Well, this was a trip. It was great to hear Sarah talk about this film. Her affection is fairly contagious, and it was great that you guys had fun with it. I actually did see it a few years ago when I first got Netflix streaming, and of course, I'd heard about it for ages. And dot dot dot. I'm not sure what the hell was going on. However, your show did help a little bit. Will I try it again someday? Eh, don't know. But I'm more inclined than now now than before, so maybe. To be fair, I don't think we were sure what was going on either towards the end, but... Yeah, we just rode with I, it. I don't really know that that's what the movie's about, something going on. I think you just have to experience the vibe of it or something. <laughs> anyway, I also have watched Heavy Metal, the movie, more times than I should admit, because it's not a good movie. I did it... I guess I did it for me. I guess I... Wow, I guess it did for me what Barbarella did for Sarah. Have I said too much? I've said too much. Shutting up now. I've seen Heavy Metal. I don't remember much about it, but I've seen it. The Uh, only association I have with Heavy Metal as an animated is walking through the room when somebody was watching it and I saw a naked animated woman. It's the first time I've ever seen a naked animated woman. Yep. Oh, since you asked, here's what I've been watching lately. I know you didn't ask. This is how I roll. I went on a minor binge of various MCU movies finishing with Infinity War and Endgame. That was pretty fun. And the highlight is I never got tired of Ant-Man movies. I need to watch Ant-Man again. Also, my daughter is big into Steven Universe, which I watched with her and love it a lot myself. We were waiting for the new season, Steven Universe Future, to come to our cord-cutting services, but finally broke down and bought it from Amazon. She binged it in one night. But I'm old, so I spread it out more. Oh, my God. The feelings. Love, love, love. Okay. So the thing about Steven Universe Future is that it was aired in two blocks. And um, they didn't really communicate very clearly with when episodes were going to be coming out. So after, I don't know, 10 episodes of Steven Universe Future, it stopped. Mm. And so you didn't know if they were going to do more. It's like he had Happily no future. they did do more. Um, you 
actually check Snake Island? Mm -mm, you would know. They still so my son knew. I did check resources, but I could never find anything. But he knew. He's like, no, they're going to do more episodes. And we we're like, okay, whatever. And sure enough, he was right. And they did more episodes. And they finished it all out. And it was really, really good. Cool. I saw you. Awesome. 1975 cat movies? Wow, I haven't watched those since they first aired. Looking forward to that. Till next time. Hey, he didn't do a thing, but maybe because it's a not comic special, so you're not supposed to. Is that a rule? It could be a rule. I, I, I think it's a rule. Yeah. I, I remember writing that rule. Yeah, because we don't do it either. Okay, so there's a Facebook comment from Bill Guerra. Okay. Um, on episode 113 and Mailbag 10, which is also the G stands for Nom 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 episode. Bill Guerra says Galactus in his Christmas colored suit is strange. Also, since you guys were talking about it, Galactus does change in size. It was revealed during the 80s in the FF. He literally shrinks the longer it's been since he's fed, and he burns through his internal energies. So, we have that pretty well established now. I just think it was really inconsistent, even in the story. Yeah. But that's okay. All right, that was short, so let me see what the next one is. Um, Tim Price, Hulkin' and Waffles? Yes. All right. Thor 126, the big battle with Hercules was pretty epic. Totally agree that there wasn't a lot of story in this issue, but if you want to read a great action-filled fighty fest, this is a good one. Just don't think about the disappearing hammer, Thor's, and Mace, Herc's, or Odin's bad parenting, or Jane's why can't they write her betterness. <laughs> so besides that, yeah! <laughs> it might seem like the Asgard's Tales quest was a waste of time since they didn't find anything and had to turn right back around and go to Asgard, but maybe it wasn't about the search. Maybe it was about the friends they made along the way. No, it wasn't. Urgh. Maybe the real cracked sword was the friends we made along the way. Maybe. Maybe Odin's just a jerk. Tales to Astonish 78. Namor and Puppet Master. I don't like the Puppet Masters. Look here. No. Just no. Do not like. No, no. Have you guys discussed how does water make Namor stronger? Fish and other ocean creatures are weaker on land because their bodies aren't designed to exist outside of a water environment. But amphibious creatures, frogs, crabs, turtles are equally adept. It's just the buoyancy of water lets them do different things while submerged that are not possible on land. But they can't suddenly do backflips on land just by spraying them with a sprinkler. So how is this a thing for Namor? But hmm. frogs do, like, dry out if they don't get water, right? Like, they couldn't just sit around with no water all the time. They have to go back and forth. Okay, so he, he's actually losing wetness and drying out and getting weaker that by rejuvenating his moisture fixes i mean i'm not saying that namer works like a frog i'm just saying that i know a frog actually needs water but i don't know it's not to like triple his strength or, <laughs> or anything i don't know he would just die if he was not if he was in the sun too long without water what if thor's a frog what happens then then you have like very cool series that i haven't read yet but i heard good things it's fun yeah plus there's zero calories in water so it's not like it's spinach or anything Dang, now I'm trying to make up Namor lyrics for a Popeye's song. I'll work oh, on it. We need water. And it's not like there's calories in it, so. It's true. I don't know. It must work somehow. Science, kids. Hulk and the Waffle Trap. LOL, waffles. That was hilarious, John. Thank you. You talked about Hulk should be a curse for Banner, but instead these issues show Banner being a curse for Hulk. I get that vibe, too, but I think that actually lasts a long time. When I think of the occasional issue I read in the 70s, that was still the case. Now, in the 80s and 90s, when Peter David wrote the Hulk, he balanced the stories with Banner and the Hulk pretty equally until he fully fused them. 
but I'm thinking more and more that Banner is a distraction. It will continue. I guess we'll see. But that's weird because they had a TV show that totally flipped it and made mm-hmm. Hulk the problem, not Banner. So why didn't they pick up the awesomeness of that and put it in a comic book? Yeah, I can only imagine what it would be like for people from 1978 to 1983 or whatever who watched the Hulk, thought it was really cool, and then grabbed a comic book. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, what's this? Why is Betty's hair blue-gray? Seriously, are they trying to make her look old? Were the artists worried about confusing her with Betty Brant again? I did think about Betty Ross's hair color and how weirdly inconsistent mm, it was. I guess I didn't notice that. Tales of Suspense 76, I fear you are right. Turning Happy into the freak was solely to give him amnesia um, to preserve Tony's secret. Blech. I know the secret identity is very important to superhero stories, but blech. Well, Tim, it was even less important than that because that didn't stick either. Yeah. It was just an unfortunate series of events. <laughs> or a series of unfortunate events. Ooh. So, Mandarin. Again. They never explained why he originally targeted Tony, and I guess they never will because this story would be the perfect time to do so. Tony and Mandy face-to-face, it's all, I'll use you to destroy Iron Man because reasons. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually can't even remember how they started fighting in the first place. Uh, Was it just the whole, like, he's bent on dominating? Because originally the Mandarin was so hated and feared that even the uh, communist powers in Asia had cast him out. And he was going to take over the world, and Iron Man was in his way. Did he, like, attack America, and then Iron Man went after him or something? I think he was a known threat to America, and so Mm. um, the government sent Iron Man to investigate him and find him and stop him. Because now Mandarin mostly just really hates Iron Man because he hasn't successfully killed him. Right. But I think he's stopped the world domination thing, which means Iron Man's being effective. Yeah. I do hope we get some answers about Cap and the woman from the past and the woman in the present, which is just past which is our past too, just not so much in the past. I don't know what that means. I just write random stuff. I we will you. get answers because we already know the answers, right? Mostly. Yeah. The cartoon Ultimate Spider-Man completely changed Batch Rock the Leaper for me because in that show, he was always jumping and saying, <laughs> leap, leap, as he did. I want this in comics so bad. Or like a sound effect. Can you picture a big Kirby leap in the top of a panel? I want that. That would really Until work next for that time. character. I think it would. Until next time, or until the X-Men fight the Womandarin, make mine make ours marvel. Hmm. Okay, I think uh, we've got like three more Junes to bust out, and then we should quit. I think so, too. Or is it four Junes? I don't know. But the next June I have is the Red Skull's face, Jimmy Henry. Jim Henry? Yeah. Okay. In your discussion of Sergeant Fury number 25, featuring an out-of-costume Red Skull, you wondered whether at a certain point he is showing his real face or one more mask. I remember seeing the Red Skull's face in the Captain America storyline where the Falcon makes his first appearance. The Red Skull uses the Cosmic Cube to switch bodies with Cap. It took Cap several issues to get the Skull mask off, but he had gotten it off by the time he met Sam Wilson, trained him, and helped him design a costume. This was around Cap 1 through four, 114 through 119. However, on reskimming the issue where he gets the mask off, 117, I find that he has his back to the, lead, to the reader when he takes the mask off, and when he appears again after a few pages of the Red Skull using Cap's body to ruin his reputation, we see Cap again with his back to the reader, working up a disguise out of clay and whatever else is lying around on the island where the scrolls stranded him. So the fact that the faces in Sergeant Fury number 25 and Cap 117 don't look anything alike doesn't mean anything. Interesting. True. 
I also feel like we were just never re- supposed to know what he looked like, so that has to be. I don't know. Just in my own head canon, it's got to be a disguise. Also, yeah, feel- outside of the head canon, it's got to just be completely made up that it's the Red Skull in the first place. But he does take his mask off in the Golden Age. He totally shows his face in the Golden Age. It's not common, but it does happen. Yeah, and I don't think he looked anything like a dude in Sergeant Fury twenty five. Yeah. And in Cap 300, I think, he first reveals it, and it turns out he's an old man, and everybody gasps and stuff. <gasps> How can you fight if you're so dang old? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize you age, because I don't. Um, this is a really tiny one, so I'll just do... Well, you got to read the sign-off. John, Jim Henry's sign-off. Oh, did I forget something? Yeah. Till Clea cheats on Doctor Strange with Benjamin Franklin, make mine, make ours marvel. Yes, wow. that is a thing. Wow. Ben Franklin, anyway. Mm-hmm. I have a really, really one-sentence short thing from Tim Price from okay. June 27th to the point where I'm not even sure if this is the same Tim Price. How can it be? Uh-oh. But it says, Roy Thomas interview. Oh, that was fun. Thank you for sharing, John. You're welcome. That I'm was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like that? Yeah, I did. Good, good. Um, I was looking to see how many. Okay, this is the last Tim Price from June. There might be one email or two. What number? What, um, what date is your June? June 27th. Okay, go ahead. Hunting Up Mentalos, episode 115. Okay. Strange Tales 143. You hit on the head with the conclusion of the Mentalo Fixer story. Mentalo didn't do anything. Why was his? Why was this Mort considered such a big threat? The buildup just didn't have a payoff. Very meh. Yeah. Now about... Uh, Stark's role in the series, I'm in the camp thinking it's really cool that he's just here being science guy without the armor. I get your point that it was con- it would confusing for a reader that wasn't collecting suspense, but I wonder if it comes up enough in the letters page or the blurbs about the other comics in the same month so pointing out the story isn't that important. I don't know for sure, but I wonder. I'm totally down with him not being Iron Man in, in uh, Strange Tales. I like it. I like it a lot. The only thing is you, ha- you can't do stuff like that heart attack. Yeah, yeah. Wait, both Nick Fury and Doctor Strange were shackled with masks over their faces in this issue? That's a lot of bondage for a kid's comic stand. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. So, Doctor Strange has metal mittens on and climbs a ladder on the water tower. That's dang difficult and pretty dangerous without grabbing with your fingers. Technically not impossible, but adding on his astral form playing peekaboo through the mask every few seconds, and that's crazy. Um, you know metal mittens it's fun stuff hmm. pretty glad to see the story wrap up here's hoping the inevitable rematch with dormouse dormouse is a good one. the fantastic 449 simply put i love this issue love 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 even the wonkiness i don't care these moments make me love it even more we really liked 49 i think yeah that was like the big uh high point of the story uh-huh for example the thing is taking a bath are you kidding me the thing is taking a bath and the panel where he's drying his foot with a towel is just an ordinary moment. But when it's a thing doing it, suddenly it's awesome. Yeah. That page with Galactus dropping bug spray on Ben was just perfect. Trying to figure out if that capsule was in one of those pill packages where you push it through the foil or if Big G has them in his pocket and it's so small. Hold on. I just need to grab one. Aw, <laughs> oh, sheesh. It keeps slipping away. Give me a sec. Ben and Reed docking Big G off the Galactus. Galactus pass? Yeah. Big G off the Baxter building is a great bit of teamwork. It gives just a moment when it seems like they can get somewhere, but just for the moment. Frog Castle seriously needs to be a thing. Oh, because Frank Castle, but he looks like an alien frog. Oh, Frog Castle, yeah. Yep. 
I was thinking of like a castle for frogs. I was confused. Hilarious guys, but also when I read this as a kid, the Punisher was seriously intimidating. Those super fast fists blew my mind. Okay. Last issue. Yeah, I saw this too. Okay, what he's about to say. Last issue, Superman. Superman? Dang it. Silver Surfer let himself fall off the building since it wouldn't hurt him. This issue, he stumbles senselessly into Alicia's apartment. Uh-huh. Seems like he was hurt to me. Yeah, maybe he underestimated his abilities. I know it's probably Stan putting more into the dialogue than needed. Just a weird thing I notice. Have I mentioned that I love this issue? Amazing Spider-Man 35. Molten Man. Now more Moltener. I've shared before that I had Marvel Treasury editions as a kid. This issue is in one of those treasuries. I think they edited some parts out, so it was pretty much just an action fest. And they might have done what you suggested, left out Multi being released from prison and went straight to the jewel heist. If so, it was a very effective way to tell the story, and it probably left out the pages with Veronica at the Bugle, since there was no other context for that subplot. Mm-hmm. So I have nostalgia for this story, but it's not the best spider story ever, especially since there's almost zero Peter drama. Yeah, you gotta it, was have really, the Peter uh, dramas. it was really dovetailing towards the end there. Especially as a, as a Ditko Peter comic, you have to have the Peter drama. Mm-hmm. But Spidey beats Multi by tying him up. <laughs> Bondage. <laughs> The Avengers 26. I don't have much to say about Cap's kooky quartet. More a point I can't shake. You know when a bug lands on water, it can just stand there or float easily, and a half a full-grown human has to work hard to float on the water? So why did Jan grow to full size to float instead of staying small? <sighs> yeah. That's a fantastic thought. Yeah. That would have been smarter, and, huh? And why didn't Hank, I'm an ant expert, Pim, point this out? Another great month of comics covered, and FF50 is almost here. I'm so excited. So until next time, or until Galactus changes his color scheme again to gold, make a mind make ours marvel. Gold? Does he become gold Galactus like Golden Frieza? Maybe. Not that I've ever seen. Okay. Two last emails. Okay. Have you seen Bad A? I do. Hi, John and Mike. In the first iteration of number 115, you talked about the first iteration... How many iterations were there? You talked about... Oh, uh, there were two versions of 115s. We didn't record it. The first one was bad. Oh, you talked about Dr. Strange's credit box in Strange Tales number 143, especially the Strange written and rewritten by Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas touched on this subject, but his essay included... In his essay included in the book, The Stanley Universe. Here's the quote. On the next non-humor story I scripted, the Ditko plotted and drawn Dr. Strange, a 10-pager on which I worked from Steve's handwritten notes... Stan had me rewrite my script, written on tissue overlays, a time or two. That written and rewritten by before my name was no joke, not to me, not to Stan. And even at that, some of the lines are probably largely rewritten by Stan into the form in which they appeared in the published comic. Wow. That should also explain why neither of you noticed a blatant change in the tone of the books or in the voice of the characters. This Roy Thomas is also interesting because it shows that Stan could be pretty hands-on as an editor when it was needed, that he didn't always claim credit for his writing work. Now that must be a rare occurrence in his career. Keep up the great podcast, and let's hope you won't have to re-record an episode anytime soon. We've made it through 15, 20 more, actually. So, so We far, had to so do good. it twice, right, or something? Back-to-back, 114 and 115, yep. Yeah. For different reasons, too. It was, it was lots of fun. Oh, that's interesting about Roy uh, Thomas. Um Having to rewrite that script because Stan said it wasn't up to stuff. I don't even... 
did we notice a change in tone of the Doctor Strange? He kind of seems the same to me still. But uh, I don't think we noticed a tone at, at that time, no. No. Okay, last email. Yay. This is from Scott McFadden, Fantastic 449. Mm-hmm. Hello, Mike and John. I'm continuing to enjoy the podcast. Want to drop you a quick note about FF49, in particular your comments about how the Silver Surfer's characterization of this issue, seeming to have no concept of human emotions such as love and empathy, is at odds with what we would later learn about its origin. Yes, thank you. Let's see what he says. Okay. I forget where I read it. You gotta cite your sources. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It's probably a Ronan Rose book, Tales to Astonish, which is about the collaboration between Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. But Jack apparently had a completely different origin in mind for the Surfer which would not have involved his ever being an ordinary person. Unfortunately, when the surfer finally got a series of his own, Stan went with John Buscema as the artist rather than Jack. So Jack's idea never saw the light of day. If this source is correct, that was one of the things that encouraged Jack in his move to DC soon after in the desire to have greater control over his creations. Wow. Well, that gels with what we were confused about. Because he totally acts like a never-been-human or ordinary person before a person. And Stanley really uses the Silver Surfer book as like a a, of a soapbox for himself. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine if the Silver Surfer was more of a Jack Kirby concept, mm-hmm. which it feels like one, mm-hmm. how Kirby might have taken that very wrongly. And also now, if, if Stanley wants to make curb or surfer a commentator on humanity then maybe he shouldn't have made him human at all or human like right keep it keep him as an outsider yeah keep him as this weird artificial creation of galactus or whatever kirby's idea was i don't want to get into the whole stan versus jack debate i don't think it's a very productive use of anyone's time at this late date but with the surfer in particular it is like a bit ironic how much stan later embraced that character as his concerning the surfer was entirely jack's idea i'm sorry scott i did not mean to uh, steal your idea in the in, say your Paragraph ahead of time. Um, slightly less important, but something I've always noticed and wondered about. In issue 47, Ben punches a surfer and he falls off the roof of the Baxter building. In this issue, we see he's landed in Alicia's skylight and falls into her apartment. Does that mean that Alicia's apartment is right next door to the <laughs> wow, Baxter building? we did not think about that. That is weird, because I've seen Ben like walking down the sidewalk to get to Alicia before. That makes zero sense, because the Baxter building is surrounded by other... Business buildings, I thought. I don't know. I thought the Baxter building like stood on its own, and there was like space around it, and then other buildings. Well, no. maybe he got no, punched really like, far. Connected. Maybe. No, no, no. That doesn't make sense. I also enjoyed your all-too-brief interview with Roy Thomas, who is one of the creators I remember most fondly from my youth. I started reading Marvel Comics in the 70s. Stan and Jack were gone by then, but Roy, along with people like Marv Wolfman and Jerry Conway and Len Wein, were the major creative forces of my childhood. I'm glad that he's still around. Thanks again for the podcast. Yeah, very late 60s Roy Thomas and 1970s Roy Thomas is my favorite Roy Thomas. Mm -hmm. Not so Um, much 60s X-Men Roy Thomas. Not so much. Or even, honestly, when he first starts the Avengers. It's his... Yeah. It takes him a little bit to get into the group before the Avengers really starts cooking. But yeah, um, definitely uh, lots of respect to to Mr. Thomas. Yes. And that is another Mailbag episode, kids. That's it. We made it to June of 2020. I just looked at the clock. I did not realize we had gone two solid hours. Yes. That's why, I, that's why I, I have not been silence. listening for the last half hour. <laughs> Mike Kaiser is on his phone <laughs> playing done. 2048. <laughs> I'm super into Sudoku now. Right, right, right. No, but really, we always appreciate your emails. Always appreciate your thoughts. Um, 
And yeah, we look forward to seeing more and we'll keep you posted on the whole PayPal link idea. We'll, 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 we'll think about that. Try to figure out how to do that. Get, get singles of dollars and donations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, we don't really have a thing to do to sign off for this. So if you want to send us an email, podcast at makearsmarble.com. That's right. And uh, I guess we'll be back again next month. All right. Bye. Thanks for writing. Bye.